0: How many of you ever played the game hide and seek? Probably most of you, either when we were children or with our own children or grandchildren. It's considered a, a children's game, but but adults find themselves playing it not infrequently. Any number can play it. Just helps to really have three or more. One person is is it, and the it person. Uh, stay someplace and, and close their eyes and counts to a designated number, and everybody else scatters and, and hides. And then it, that person, at the end of that counting goes and tries to find them. It's, it's, it's an interesting uh, game because if it, the person it, can't find everybody and they want to give up, they, they say this phrase, Ali Ali oxen free. Do you remember ever saying that? What in the world does that mean? I have no idea. But that's what you do, and then the people come out, and then you play again. There's some variations of this basic game. There's one where it, whoever's it, stays where they're at. They count, often by a tree or something. They count, and, and then they stay after they're done counting. And the people hiding try to get back to home base. Home base is wherever the person that's in is. And they try to touch home base like that tree before it can touch them. And once they touch home base, they're free. I don't know if you ever played that version we did growing up. Another uh, version is called Sardines. I, I don't know if you play played this one. It's kind of interesting. It's where... Um, one person is, goes out, everybody's counting, and one person goes out and hides, and then everybody goes and tries to find that one person. And when you find that one person, you hide with them, okay? And then the next person comes, finds them, hides with And you can see, if you have a lot of people, it starts to build up, thus the name Sardines. And, and you can get really tight in that compacted place. And the last person that finds now the group is the next it, the game's played all over the world. In fact, it's, it's very popular in Australia, India, Brazil, Russia, and throughout Europe. Though it's a children's game, it can be very challenging. I don't even play it with some really skilled hiders, uh, but it can be extremely interesting when played at a hide level. But can you imagine playing it with God as it? You, you would say, uh, we'd say that's impossible, because how would we play hide-and-seek with God as it? Well, that's what Isaiah is going to say we do this morning, in this morning's passage. Turn with me again, we're in Isaiah 29, and uh, that's page 590 in the Blue Bibles, and we're starting at verse 15. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord, your counsel whose deeds are in the dark, who say, who sees us, who knows us? You turn things upside down, shall the pottery be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. He starts off with this idea that, that we hide, that we, we somehow hide from God. That whole idea is fascinating to me, right? I mean, how do we think we can hide from God? I mean, because we can't see him, he can't see us. I mean, is it that we think so much in human terms, it's like, when, when you're not with me and you can't see me, you don't know what I'm doing, unless I paste it on fo- post it on Facebook, which is what most of the world does now, but we won't get into that. Or, or even when you're with me right now, you really don't know what I'm thinking, right? It's that secrecy that we, that we kind of enjoy, that sense of privacy, it gives us, Great comfort. I don't want people knowing my business. They have no right to know. We even call people who ask too many probing questions what? Busybodies. Considered a negative term. Now, how we can think that God, in God that way, I mean, cognizantly, we know that God knows all, right? Yet we function often as if He doesn't. As if he only knows what, well, what we let him know. This way of thinking or functioning has been going on for a long, long time. You remember Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? They, they sin, so what do they do? They hide from God. I think their thinking is, well, if we hide from him, they, he won't find out that we sin. So, so we'll just hide from him. And it's gone on ever since. Is that what we do? Sometimes I find myself... You know, talking to somebody. And, and sometimes it's a challenging situation where I almost maybe have to confront them. And and they're telling me about this thing that they've got themselves into. And I say, well, what are you doing with God while you're doing this? And they often say, well, well, they're ignoring him or they're hiding from him. Well, they may not use those words, but the sense is the same. And I remind them you know, that doesn't really work. They'll say, yeah, I know. But they'll keep on doing it. Let's be clear what the Bible says about this topic. Jeremiah 23, 24. God says, can a man hide himself in secret places so I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? And in Hebrews four thirteen, and very... Very uh, stark terms. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Being on this side of Pentecost, this this idea even makes less sense, right? I mean, we're told that if we're in Jesus Christ, if we're saved, if we're justified, we have what? We have the Holy Spirit in us, the terms indwelling in us, right, like, right here. It's one thing we think of God as transcendent, you know, like, wherever, a long ways away, and so He can't see us, and there's so many people, He probably doesn't notice me, so I can slip by, and He won't even figure it out. But if we're in Christ and we have the Holy Spirit right here, how in the world in our minds do we ever have the idea that God doesn't see? God doesn't know. You know, even if we're not in Christ, even if we're not saved, and even if we don't have the Holy Spirit, God still sees. See, in the Bible, it seems like, well, as humans see God as, as kind of like, um, well, he's off somewhere, and then and he's waiting, and then we summons him because we need him, and he comes, and, and, we, and we have him help us in whatever it is, and then he goes away. It's like God on demand. I call it the freeze-dried God he's in freeze-dried state, all of a sudden we have a problem, we go, we add some water to God, whoop, he becomes the big mighty God, he fixes our problem for us, and then we put him back in the dehydrator, and he goes back into his freeze-dried state, till we need him again. That thinking is, was well, wrong, and it's backwards, and Isaiah says it, it comes from what he says in 16, that we've got things upside down, that that we're the clay, and he's the potter. If I had a conversation with you, there is not, I doubt, a person in this room that would not affirm the truth of that God is sovereign, knows everything, and has created everyone in this room. Yet, Most of us unknowingly put ourselves above God and above his word. We come to the Bible with our own set of beliefs or values. We find in the Bible the parts that agree with those beliefs. It's amazing that we can take two people who have radically different beliefs and they both can point to the Bible as the foundation for those beliefs. As if the Bible is whatever we make of it. And that's wrong. Now, where do we get these beliefs? Well, it's how we are raised, it's friends, it's, it's relatives, it's media, it's what we read, what we take in. It's what's called the world. The world molds and shapes us. And we're told the world is an enemy of God. And we bring that worldly view into the Bible when we read it, and we read that into what the Bible says. In fact, it's amazing in seminary, one of the first things they do is show you how much of what you believe you force upon the Bible. You know, a good seminary student, you're going, oh, no, I'm, I'm reading the Bible for exactly what it says. And then they show you through these exercises how powerfully we are shaped by the world, and we bring that to the Bible. When we do that, we're making the Bible beneath us. And when we make the Bible beneath us, we have put God beneath us. If this is God's word, and we bring our values to the Bible, then again, we're making God beneath us. It's exactly what he's saying. He goes on. 17, is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day the deaf will hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing and the scoffer cease. And all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. Who by a word word, make a man out to be an offender. And lay a snare for him who reproofs in the gate. And with an empty plea turn aside he who is in the right. Just as the last verse talked about how we get things upside down. It says that there's a day... When God is going to turn things upside down, at least upside down based on the world's values. The forests of Lebanon are famous for, for their, their cedar, and that's what we read so much in the Old Testament about how these, the temple and the palaces were built with Lebanon cedar. But there's a day when all that forest is going to be fields. And all the fields become forests, and the deaf hear and the, the blind See? This reminds us of the Beatitudes that we find in Matthew, right? Where it seems like everything's backwards. The concepts throughout the Bible. And the idea is a complete reversal of the world's values by God into His values. I don't know if you remember, many years ago John preached a sermon. It was called The Great Reversal. And he talked about how the Bible talks about the way we see things, the way the world does things is opposed to God, and there's a day that's coming where he's going to flip that all around. But part of that is today. Part of that today, when those of us in Christ who are part of the kingdom of God are supposed to be part of that flipping it around. The key, though, is to understand what God values. What does he value? One like the world which values power, the power of money and the power of might. God values justice and mercy. At least that's what the Bible teaches. Jesus says the entire Bible can be summed up in these two commandments. We find it in all three of the synoptic gospels, but we'll quote from Matthew. Matthew 22 Sorry, verse 35, and one of them, speaking of the Pharisees, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he, he being Jesus, said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets are the Bible. So all the Bible can be summed up by those two things. That's what God values. And that's what this passage is talking about. In 15 and 16 it's talking about how we fall short on the first one. Completely loving God. Living for God. Being in relationship with Him through Jesus Christ and being complete followers of Jesus. That's the first one. And then the, the second one, 16, or 17, talks about how we, how we don't live the second one out. How we have the world's values, how we, yeah. How we look at the scoffer and we look at the people who seek to, lay aside justice for their own favor. If we're followers of Jesus Christ, we are at odds with the views and values of this world. And I don't mean political views. I mean, it isn't like, oh, I'm against this political view, so I'm at odds with the world. No, you hold a different political view that's also at odds with God. And it's not because you disagree with somebody that you're at odds with the world. Example, if you you think you're taxed too much, that's a worldly view. How much we are taxed is not a concern of God. If you don't agree, show me in the New Testament where God's Word supports you, and I will show you in the New Testament where God's Word teaches He doesn't care how much we pay, we're just told to pay them. Some might be thinking, why are you even getting so political? I'm not. If you know me, you know I hate politics. I consider that a result of the fall of humans. Government is of God. Politics are fallen man. I consider politics the same as pornography. A distortion of something given by God, distorted by fallen humans. Even saying the word taxes, I felt a need to call John yesterday. I kid you not. I read him this section. Are you okay if I stand up in the pulpit and say the word taxes? He says, You're going to hear about it, but let's go with it. <laughs> I'm not talking politics, I'm talking values. See, I can talk about money all day, and, and, and you would, you'd probably have very little reaction to what I'm saying. But if I say taxes, I get everybody's attention. All of a sudden, everybody sits up. He said taxes. He's talking politics on the pulpit. I'm not for or against taxes. But they're great at revealing what we value. We get intense about things that we value. People, I've never had anybody ever give me their top five or even ten things that they value and have money on that list. Yet almost everybody's life reveals a different story. Again, what does God value? Living for Him and treating others as we would like to be treated. Have you ever thought, boy, I'm sure glad I didn't get born in that city or that economic situation or, or, or that country or under that situation or into that poverty or into that race or that ethnicity? Or have you ever thought, I'm sure glad I didn't get born with that birth defect or that disease? with that challenge. But we're to think, what if we were? What if we were born into that situation? What would we want? What would we need? What we're called to do is meet the needs and wants of those people that are in those situations. Just because we weren't born into them does not mean we can just walk away and say, by the grace of God, I don't have to worry about that. Because when we do, then we're disobedient to the second greatest command that God has given us. one of the greatest ways to stop worrying about and having anxiety about our own problems help somebody else deal with theirs extend them mercy extend them grace another way we can extend grace is through forgiveness you know once a month here about we say the lord's prayer have you thought about what we say when we say that Forgive me my trespasses, my sins, only to the extent I've forgiven others. And where the Lord's Prayer is found in Matthew, the line right after the Lord's Prayer says exactly that. We'll be forgiven to the extent we forgive. He wraps up verse 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of, his, of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmur, will accept instruction. Isaiah wraps up the whole section, going all the way back to chapter 28, by saying, In the day the true children of God will sanctify His name, the name of God. To sanctify His name means to declare to ourselves and to the world that He truly is God. And we declare it with our lips and with our lives. I don't know about you, but playing hide-and-seek with God seems to make no sense whatsoever. God being it, well, it seems ridiculous. Yeah, we all find ourselves there. Somehow living a life that we think God isn't watching every minute of every day reading the two great commandments that, that the entire Bible is built upon and somehow we think they don't fully apply to us or as long as we do some of it once in a while, it's okay. We need to stop hiding from God. We need to devote our lives wholly and completely to Him pray. Gracious Father, we acknowledge at times that well, we think we can hide from you or that you're not fully present. We'd never say it, but it seems like how we act. Give us a fuller understanding of your presence. Help us fully understand what it means that God, the Holy Spirit, dwells And that you're present with us always. And through Jesus Christ, give us an understanding of how we can live lives that are pleasing to you. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Invite the ushers to come forward.